while we receive the offering, why don't you guys go ahead and pull out your Bibles. Uh, we're going to jump right into the Word this morning, so let's get after it. Um, we're going to be in three different scriptures this morning, three different passages. A lot of times here at Flourishing Grace, what we tend to do is uh, focus in and hone in on one singular text. This morning, we're going to jump around a little bit. Um, and so, so if you have a Bible, pull out that Bible. If you didn't bring one, there's actually a white one underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can pull out that Bible. And these are the three different texts that we're going to be in, Luke 5. Matthew 14 and Luke 22. Um, in that white Bible, in that white Bible, if you're new to the Bible, it might help you just have a page number. Uh, Luke 5, um, 4 through 11 is on page 502. Page 502. You can put your thumb there. Put your thumb on page 502. Um, in that white Bible, Matthew 14 is on page uh, 479. You can put your finger in 479. And then Luke 22 is on 514. So 502, 479. 514. You can put your finger in each one of those, and that's, that's the progression that we're going to walk through this morning. We're going to actually be looking at the life of a guy named Peter. Uh, Peter was one of the first disciples of Jesus. And if, for those of you who have been around for the past few weeks, we're in the middle of a series called True Flourishing Is. The idea is, is that Flourishing Grace Church, we're all about leading people into flourishing relationships with Jesus. That's what we're all about. The question is, how do you know if you will have a flourishing relationship with Jesus? How do you know if you are leading a neighbor, a friend, a coworker into a flourishing relationship with Jesus? How, how do you know that they have a flourishing relationship with Jesus? What does that look like? And so what we've done is through a lot of prayer and just study and, um, and just, just thought, we've created and developed seven core convictions um, that we would say, these, these seven core values, core convictions. And when we see these in our lives, when we see these in the lives of our friends, and we know that there is flourishing going on there, that there is a relationship with Jesus that is either forming or is fully flourishing when we see these seven things. Um, this is kind of catch, catch you up. The first one we talked about was putting Jesus first at all costs. There's something that happens that the, kind of the beginning of all of this is when we begin to treasure Jesus more than anything else in this world. When we see the supreme beauty and worth and value of Jesus Christ, that is the beginning of true flourishing. And we talked about living a prayer-saturated life, right? The, the bedrock of any relationship, whether it's a marriage, a family, uh, even, even coworkers, is, is good communication, right? If you're going to have a relationship with the God of the universe, uh, there needs to be some communication there. And so living a prayer-saturated life, uh, a life where we just kind of bathe ourselves in communicating with Jesus, um, is a mark of a flourishing relationship with him. And then last week, we talked about loving, uh, loving people no matter what. Uh, or, sorry, yeah, I mean, yeah, loving people no matter what. Um, and so the idea being, when Jesus is asked, what are the, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? He doesn't come back with one. He comes back with two, right? Um, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we look at the example that Jesus gives of this in the parable of the Good Samaritan and talk about how we're called, we're called by Jesus. If we were going to follow him and be in a flourishing relationship with him, we are a people who love people no matter what. Doesn't matter where they are born, what, what country they come from, or what state they come from, even if they are born and raised in Utah, we still love them no matter what. Right? I mean, they're, they're strange, but we love them no matter what. I love you guys. Um, it does not matter um, what, what race they are, what sexual orientation they may have, or how, how much money they have, or how little money they have. We love people no matter what. That is the call of the follower of Jesus. This morning, we're going to talk about one that might be actually even a little bit harder for us. 
You see, the first three, I think, were like, oh, yeah, yeah for sure. Love Jesus. Love people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Do that. Pray. Of course, you're supposed to do that as a follower of Jesus. This one's a little bit harder. The, the, the fourth um, core conviction or core value is radical obedience, living a life of radical obedience. Now, for some of you, that, that kind of might make you uh, itch a little bit and your skin begins to crawl a little bit. Let me just kind of start by saying, let, let me tell you what it's not. Let me tell you what radical obedience is not here at Flourishing Grace Church. Radical obedience is not a list of do's and don'ts. It is not a list of um, no smoking, no drinking, no tattoos, no fast cars, no fun. That is, that's not it. That's not it. Radical obedience is also um, not radical obedience to me or a person or even an organization. It's not it. A lot of religions go there. They, they create lists and they say, well, if you check off all these boxes, then you are obedient. Or if you do everything that this person tells you to do, then you are obedient. That's not what radical obedience is. It's not. However, what it is, what it is, is much simpler to understand and yet much harder to actually do. What radical obedience is, is much simpler to understand than those things, but it's actually much harder to do. We're going to look at radical obedience through the life of Peter. Peter was one of the first disciples of Jesus. Peter grew up um, in a place called Bethesda. Bethesda um, is near Jerusalem, so it's in, it's in uh, the nation that is in Israel. Okay, it's in Israel. It's in a, it's in a region called Judea, um, and it sits on a sea, the Sea of Galilee which is where Jesus kind of did the primary, the, the bulk of his ministry was in and around this, the region of Galilee. Uh, and so it sits on the Sea of Galilee. Peter grows up there with his uh, family as a brother, Andrew. Um, and at some point, he moves from Bethesda to Capernaum. He gets married. Peter was married. Um, he lived in Capernaum uh, there with his wife and with his mother-in-law. Um, as, Jewish, as a Jewish young man, um, most Jewish young men in this day would have gotten married in their early to mid-teens. Um, which is probably when Peter got married, um, moved in with his, with his wife and his mother-in-law, which would also be fairly common that day. If your mother-in-law is, a, is widowed, um, for, to live with her and take care of her would be a pretty common idea. Peter had a fishing business with his brother Andrew. They, they, were, they were in business together as fishermen. They also had partners in this business, two guys named James and John, who were also brothers, right? And so um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had, ran a fishing business right there in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the interactions, the early interactions between Peter and Jesus, um, you have to kind of look at all four Gospels in order to align these things properly, okay? So the, f- the first four books of the New Testament, the Bible's broken into kind of two big, vast chunks. You have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. The beginning of the New Testament is what we call the Gospels, these first four uh, books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are historical accounts of the life of Jesus, and in these historical accounts, they, they, they're written by four different guys at four different times in history. And so, so you get kind of different pictures and different moments that Jesus engages with his disciples. And so in order to line them up, you kind of have to look at all three, four of these gospels. Um, Peter's first engagement with Jesus happens in John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. What happens is um, Andrew, Peter's brother, Peter's birth name was Simon, and so sometimes you'll see, see uh, this guy Simon, same person, okay? Andrew, Andrew is a follower of a guy by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one who God called to, to make way 
um, the path for the Messiah, to, to begin to prepare um, the people's hearts, the people of Israel, to prepare their hearts and say, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is going to be near. And so Andrew buys into this idea. He says, I'm going to follow John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist had this crew of guys that were following him around. He was teaching them about the Messiah and what it's going to be like and that he's coming. And then one day the Messiah shows up. John chapter 1, Jesus shows up on the scene. He's walking by, and John the Baptist says kind of this famous line, right? Behold the Lamb of God who comes comes to take away the sins of the world. Andrew's standing right there. Andrew does a smart thing that any smart young man would do. Forget following John the Baptist. I'm following that guy, right? The guy who comes to take away the sins of the world. I want him, the Lamb of God. That's the one that I want to follow. So he starts following Jesus. And then the second thing he does is the thing that any good loving brother would do. He goes and gets his no good, dirty, rotten, sinful brother, Peter, and says, you need to meet this guy who comes to take away the sins of the world. All right? And so Andrew brings uh, Simon, Peter, to meet Jesus. When Jesus meets Simon for the first time, he says, nice to meet you. Your name, I'm going to call you Peter. All right, and so he's in First John, John chapter one. Um, Peter meets Jesus for the first time, and Jesus says, "Your name is now Peter." Now, the second time, the second inter- interaction that we have comes in Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four, Jesus comes to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law, which is how we know he was married. It's hard to get a mother-in-law unless you're married. All right, um, Peter's mother-in-law is super sick. She has this high fever, and it's not good. She, she's bedridden. She's very ill. Jesus comes over to the house, prays uh, for Peter's mother-in-law, and in an instant, perfectly healed. She's running around, preparing, fixing them a meal, taking care of them, saying, um, like, nothing ever happened. And so Peter, Peter engages in this, in this moment with Jesus, but still at this point in time, Peter's not a disciple of Jesus. Peter's not, a, Peter's not following him. Peter's not one of his disciples. Peter's a fisherman. That's what he does. The next interaction comes one chapter later. Um, in, in Luke 5, um, Peter is just, Peter and, his, and Andrew and James and John have just finished fishing. They've been out all night long fishing. They didn't catch much. They're cleaning their fishing gear, um, and Jesus has been going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue all throughout this land, teaching and preaching this new way, and these crowds had gathered so big and so fast, they didn't fit in the synagogues anymore, and they're following Jesus wherever, they, wherever he goes. They want to hear him teach. They want to hear him preach. They want to see him perform miracles. He's walking along the sea. They're right there by Capernaum, and the crowd is so big, they kind of, they kind of box him in. And he's stuck between the crowd and the sea, and they're pressing in, they're pressing in, he's getting pushed into the water. He looks over, he sees these guys cleaning up their fishing gear, and he says, Peter, can I use your boat? Can I borrow your boat? Peter rows over, and Jesus hops in the boat, and he rows out a little ways, and Jesus stands up in the boat and begins to preach. This is the normal thing that Jesus would have done, right? It creates this natural amphitheater, right? The people can go up on the beach and sit up on the berm, and Jesus goes out in the boat, and he can teach and preach. This new way, this way of grace and mercy and kindness, of loving the poor, loving the marginalized. And when he's done, he says to Peter, hey, let's row out a little bit farther. Let's throw our nets in, see if we catch any fish. Now, Peter's been up all night long fishing. They didn't catch anything. He's like, dude, I've been, I've been fishing on this body of water my entire life. If we didn't catch anything last night, we're not catching anything today. But here's how it goes down in Luke 4, I'm sorry, Luke 5. Verse 4, it's on page 502 if you're not already there in those white Bibles. 
Here's how it goes down. And when he, he, Jesus, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the other boats, so they begin, so that they signaled to, the, to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. They came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so all, so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. The first piece of this is that radical obedience requires a true understanding of the value of Christ. Radical obedience, if we're going to live radically obedient lives, it requires a true understanding of the value of Jesus. At this point in time in the story, right, I, I, Peter is not a disciple of Jesus, right? I believe that he respects him as a rabbi, as a teacher, right? He respects him as, a, as the man who prayed and God healed his mother-in-law, right? So he's like, sure, you can borrow my boat. Sure, I'll listen to you. We'll go throw these nets in the water, but even though I know we're not going to catch any fish, all right? He respects him. But when he sees what happens, again, he grew up on this sea. He's been fishing his entire life. When he sees this catch, he realizes, man, there is more going on here. What John the Baptist said is true. This is the Messiah. He falls down, and his response is, just, just go. Just leave. Just, just leave me. I am not worthy to be in your presence. And he says, oh, I'm leaving, and you're coming with me. You are now going to be a fisher of men. You're, you're going to catch men. No, no longer are you going to catch fish. See, true obedience requires from us this, this ability to value Jesus more than anything else in our lives. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about putting Jesus first at all costs, right? Jesus is the most powerful, most valuable, most precious thing in our lives, and for Peter, that happens in this moment when he realizes, man, this is the Messiah. The Messiah is standing in my presence. I got this boat full of fish and we're sinking. Man, I'm not worthy to be here anymore. Jesus says, now is the moment. Now come and follow me. Radical obedience is this moment where we realize, man, Jesus is far more valuable, far more greater than anything in my life, far more, can do more than I could ever do. And radical obedience is when we get up off the throne of our lives, step aside and say, Jesus, you, this is your chair. This is your seat. Come, come sit on the throne of my life. Come be the one who leads and guides me. I don't, long, I don't want to be the one who, who controls my destiny. I don't want to be the one that controls my life. I want you to be the one who sits on this throne. This, that's the beginning of radical obedience. You see, we can trust Jesus with eternity, right? We say, okay, I believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I believe that he came and he died on the cross for me, that he, that he died in my place. 
He took the punishment that was due to me, and, and because of that, he has secured for me an eternal weight of glory, and I'll be with him forever. I, I, I trust him for that. But the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life, I, I got this. I, I got this. I, listen, I, listen, you've done enough. I'll manage this. I'll take care. I'll take care of this, right? You're busy. You're busy securing eternity. I'll take care of the next 30 years of my life, right? We trust him with, with this, but you don't trust him with this. You see, radical obedience is giving him everything, stepping up off the throne of our lives and saying, Jesus, this seat is yours. Peter and Andrew and James and John, they leave everything. They say, man, Jesus is more valuable than our fishing business. He's more valuable than anything in our lives. And true um, radical obedience begins when we see the worth, the superior worth and the superior value and the superior beauty of Christ more than anything in our lives, more than our family, more than our friends, more than our careers, more than our homes, more than our comfort. And we say, Jesus, this seat's yours. I I no longer want it. The second piece of radical obedience requires the courage to ask for more responsibility or the courage to ask for more, the chance for more obedience. Um, one of the, maybe the second most famous story in Peter's life um, comes in uh, Matthew 14. Matthew 14, Jesus feeds uh, 5,000 men. Most scholars believe that this is somewhere between eight and 10,000 men, women, and children on a beach um, from just a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread. All right, Jesus feeds thousands of people. And at the end of this, he calls his disciples. He says, get in the boat, go to the other side. Actually, go to, to the, the Bethesda. Um, I'm going to meet you there. Um, but he goes up on the mountain to begin to pray. And as he prays, a storm rolls in over the Sea of Galilee, and the waves begin uh, to crash, and the wind begins to build. And uh, Jesus is up on the mountain. He sees this happening. And so he walks down to the, to, the, to the shore, and he walks out on the water in the midst of the storm to the boat where the disciples are. They've stopped being able to progress any farther. They're rowing against the wind. They cannot go any farther. The wave is battering. The waves are battering the boat, um, and they are terrified. And then they see this person walking on water, and they become even more freaked out. And, Peter, and Jesus says, don't worry, it's, it's me. And Peter's response, Peter's response is one of the craziest things in all of the Bible. Peter says this in Matthew 14, verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He, Jesus, said, come on. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, cried out Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. This, this is the craziest spectacle that I can, I can even imagine, Right? The wind is crashing. These guys are afraid of their lives. These experienced sailors, these guys who've grown up on this lake, they've sailed many times at night. They've been in storms before. Right? They are freaking out. And all of a sudden, they see somebody walking on water. Peter's response is, and if it's you, command me to get out of the boat and come to you. 
If, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. That's crazy, right? He doesn't just jump out of the boat and just run over there, right? He says, if it's you, give me the opportunity to be more obedient. Give me the opportunity to be radically obedient. Call me to you. Command me to come to you. He says, come on. And Peter begins to walk out on the water. Now, um, Peter gets a bad rap for this, but I think in all fairness, think about it for a second. If I'm walking on water and it's perfectly calm, I'm freaking out. It's crazy, right? He's walking on water and the, the seas are raging. I don't know if you've ever been battered by some waves in the ocean. It's just kind of a crazy deal. But he's standing on top of the water getting smashed by waves. That's just, it's nuts. It's just crazy to think about. And so Peter begins to freak out. Now, Jesus reprimands him and says, man, oh, you have little faith, right? But, that, but where are the other 11 guys? They're still in the boat, all right? So I'm saying, Peter, that's okay, all right? I'm, I'm with Peter on this one. I'd be freaking out too. I, th- I think it's cool that he even had the, just this, the gall and the courage to say, man, if it's you, give me the opportunity to show you, to be more obedient. Call me out on the water. Jesus, come on. I, th- I think that the, the call on the life of every follower of Jesus, and I realize not everybody in this room is a follower of Jesus, but, but if you are, if you've gotten up out of, the, out of the throne of your life and said, Jesus, this is your chair, this is your seat, lead me, guide me, the call of, on your life and on mine is to say, hey, now, 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 tell me where you want me to go. Give me the chance. Call me out of the boat. Call me out of the boat of my life. Where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to invest my life? I, if, if, if I'm left to myself, I will build this kingdom, I will structure this thing my way, and I'm telling you, it will be meaningless compared to what he will have us invest our lives in. He will have us invest our lives in something, something far greater than ourselves. Where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to engage? Do you want me to, you want me to step out of the boat of my life and begin to serve in, in Flourishing Grace Church? Am I even supposed to be here? Is this where Jesus has me, or am I just here because I like it more than another place? Let's be frank. Where am I supposed to, if I, if I am supposed to be here, if he's called me here, what are you calling me to? Where do you want me to get out of the boat? You want me to serve in the children's ministry? Is that getting out of the boat for you? Serving the connections ministry, is that getting out of the boat for you? Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus, are you calling me? You want to call me into leadership? You want me to, you want me to lead in one of those areas? You want me to lead in my neighborhood and become a small group leader, invite my neighbors into my living room to study your word together? Call me out of the boat. Give me the opportunity to be more obedient to you. A call on our life as a follower of Jesus is to step out of the boat. Now, in fairness, in fairness, this, this is an easy thing when you're young. I used to work with college students, and they're all about this, right? Jesus, send me wherever you want to send, send me to Africa. Send me to New Zealand. Send me to China. Send me to the craziest place on earth I want to go. Like, give me, oh, come on, let's go, right? But when you're in college, you don't realize how easy life is when you're in college, right? Like, you can just, you just do whatever you want. I mean, it's unreal. You're hungry, and it's like midnight, and you just walk like 100 yards, and there's a thing called a cafeteria. It's like a smorgasbord of free food. You don't have to do the dishes, you just drop the tray and somebody does them for you, right? I used to work with college students and they'd be like, oh, Josh, I got up so early. I was like, man, I'm radical obedience. I'm praying and in the word. Uh, oh, what time did you get up? It's like, oh, like 10.30, man. That's super early. 10.30, are you serious? Well, actually, it's, actually, it's closer to 11, but still, it's early. I got up early. I was in the word. I'm praying. I'm radical obedience. I'm like, dude, you have no idea, all right? 
After college, you kind of enter into another stage of life where you have to get a real job. All right, college students, you're like, I have a real job. I'm like a teacher's aide. I'm like, no, it's not a real job, okay? Um, a real job. I'm picking on college kids, but college kids, man, your faith is contagious, and I love it. That's why I worked with college students. But uh, ultimately, right, you, we move into this, this season of life, 30 to 60, where the, everything is just crazy, right? You have to get a real job, or you have to show up at a real time and stay till a real time, and um, you get married, and you want to invest your life into that marriage. You have kids, you want to invest your life into those kids, and you have to take them all different places, and um, then your parents are growing older, and you want to invest your life into your parents' lives and, um, and care for them, and just things just kind of blow up and get crazy. And the next thing you know, um, we find ourselves sitting back down in the throne of our lives trying to manage it all. And we realize, man, it's been forever since I've let Jesus sit in the seat. And I can't remember the last time when I asked him to call me out of the boat. It's been forever since um, I've asked him um, to, to, to pull me out of this seat and to, for him to sit down. We get to this place in our life where we're like, no, 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 I, I am. I'm following Jesus. I'm giving him, I'm giving him you know, every, everything on, on Sunday. I, I, no, no, I, literally, I'm, giving, I'm giving him one full day a week. The other six, I'm, I'm using to manage all these other things that are going on in my life, but I'm giving him one, one day a week. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do, right? And we fooled ourselves into believing that in some way, shape, or form, we have a radical relationship with Jesus because we've given him Sunday morning. Some of you are like, can we get, can we get this done? Because i got to get out of here. i got things to do, right? Um, and, and the thing is, we fool ourselves into thinking that we have this, this radical obedience or this flourishing relationship with Jesus, but in the reality is that we're still the ones sitting on the throne. We're still the ones that are in control of all the things in our lives. We're still the ones that are dictating where we're going and what we're doing and what the next 10 years of our life is going to look like. And no, 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 no. Radical obedience requires requires this, this courageousness to ask Jesus to call us out of the boat. To say, stir, stir the pot, call me to something greater than I could ever build or shape or mold for myself. The last piece is that radical obedience means that we, are, that we mourn our inability to truly give up the throne of our lives. Radical obedience means that we mourn our inability to truly give up the throne of our lives. Uh, I think the most famous story from Peter's life, right, um, is the story where he fails the greatest. The one that kind of everybody knows, the one that everybody brings up, is the one where Peter fails the greatest. At the end of Jesus' life, on the, on the night that he was betrayed, he sits in a room with his disciples. He calls them together to share a meal together. And Jesus begins to say, hey, this is not going to end well for me. Things are about to get a little crazy. And Peter, in, in his boldness, because Peter is, is awesome, Peter says this. He says, in Luke 22, verse 33, he says, um, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. He was like, oh, I'm ready. Let's go. And Jesus was like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Later in the very same chapter, Jesus is arrested, and he's brought to the house of the high priest. Now, now this, is, this is not before Peter cuts off somebody's ear, okay, because Peter's awesome, all right? We're just going to, we're just going to, we don't have time. Um, Jesus puts it right back on. Um, Jesus is arrested. He's brought to the house of the high priest because the, the Jewish leaders and officials want to question him and decide, what do we want to do with this guy? Do we want to kill him? What do we want to do? 
Peter follows in his boldness and his courage. Peter follows. He stands outside the house. There's a fire going on outside the house. He stands around the fire to warm himself. There's a woman there, and the woman looks at her and says, I know you. You're one of his followers, aren't you? You know, you, you follow that guy, Jesus. Peter says, no, no, not me. That's, no, no, that's me. And another guy's like, no, I'm pretty sure. That's, that's you. No, no, it's, it's, literally, it's not me. I'm just standing here near him by the fire awkwardly, okay? An hour goes by. Another guy says, aren't you, aren't you, Peter? Aren't you the guy that followed? Aren't you, aren't you one of the leaders, one of his disciples? Peter says, not me. No, not me. And the rooster crows. And Peter turns and he looks at Jesus, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And Peter's response in that moment is he weeps, and he weeps, and he weeps. He uncontrollably weeps. See, the reality is, friends, the reality is, is look, look right at me, you can't do it. The idea of radical obedience, you, you can't do it. This, this, is, this is the hardest thing to understand and to wrap your mind around, right? So many religions create the list of rules, and they say you got to follow this person and be obedient to all these things, and if not, God's going to be angry with you, or you're not going to get this, or you're not going to go to heaven. The truth is, within biblical Christianity, radical obedience is not something that you can fully, truly acquire at all times in your life. And Jesus looks right back at you, just like he looks right back at Peter and says, this is why I died for you. The reality is, is that I am fully, completely incapable of doing the one thing that's going to bring me the greatest joy, the greatest contentment, the greatest satisfaction in my life, getting up out of the throne and giving it to Jesus. I am incapable of truly doing that continually throughout my life. I always find myself sitting back down in the seat. Just this week, I'm sitting there, I'm talking to my wife, Desiree, and we're talking about the next 10 years and where we want to be and how we want to raise our kids and kids and what we want flourishing grace to look like. And I never once did we say, what does Jesus want for us? I'm like, again, Josh? Again? You're going to sit back down again? Radical obedience doesn't mean that we never fail. It means that we mourn the times that we do. It means that we sit in that seat and we slowly get up and we just weep. And we weep. We say, Jesus, would you, would you come sit back down? Come sit back down. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm an idiot. Come sit back down. And Jesus says, that's why I died for you. I, I died because you, you, you're incapable of doing it. I died in your place because you couldn't, you couldn't live that life. I died in your place because, because, you're, because you couldn't be fully obedient to me. And so I became fully obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. I gave my life for you. I died in your place. I took the punishment that was due to you so that you can be with me for all eternity, so that you can sit back down in that seat and you can look right back at me. I look right back at you and you know it's okay. And we weep and we mourn our inability to be faithful to him, to be radically obedient to him. We get up out of the seat, and he sits back down in the seat. That's radical obedience, friends. And I think often we want true flourishing. We look at people, whether it's here in a Flourishing Grace or in our lives, that have these flourishing relationships with Jesus. We say, man, I want that. I've tried. I've followed all the lists. I've done all the things. Why don't I have that? They're sitting in the seat. They're sitting in the throne of your life. 
Some of you say, no, 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 I've got it. I'm not, I'm not sitting in the throne of my life. I never, I never sit in the throne of my life. She says, all right, if that's you, you're still sitting there trying to steer it, trying to control it, trying to make everybody believe that you've got it all figured out when reality is you're just jacking it all up. Radical obedience is supremely valuing Jesus above all else. It's asking him again and again and again, call me out, bring me out, give me more. I want to be more obedient to you. I want to give more. Of my, I want to, you to be the center of my life. I want you to steer the ship. Call me out of the boat. Let's walk on the water together. And then in the moments when we catch ourselves giving up on the idea and sitting back down and thinking that we got to control something or steer something, mourning that and knowing that he is always ready to sit right back down. That is radical obedience, and that's what brings true flourishing. Bow our heads. Friends, this morning, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that many of us here in this room are sitting in the throne of our lives. We gave it up, sat back down. become consumed with controlling our careers, we become consumed with controlling our marriages, we become consumed with controlling our families, we become consumed with controlling our investments and our future and our finances. And we're building our own little kingdoms. And all of it will waste away and all of it will be meaningless and we're stressed out and we're stretched thin. Jesus is just standing right there looking right at you. The rooster crows in your life and, and you just look right back at him. Weep. Mourn. Mourn our inability. Mourn our inability to get and stay up out of that seat. Mourn your inability. Be like him then invite him to sit back down. Invite him to sit back down in the right place, in the place that's going to bring you the most contentment, the most joy, and the most delight. Jesus, what do you want from my life? Not mine. It is yours. I give it to you to do with it what you will. You sit in the sea. You control it. Let it be yours. Don't let me cling to it. Pull me out of the boat. Where do you want me to invest my time? Where do you want me to invest my life? How do you want me to parent my kids? How do you want me to love my spouse? Call me out of the boat. Give me more responsibility. Give me the opportunity to be more obedient. And you stay in that seat and you help me be radically obedient. Flourish together. Jesus, we need you more than I can begin to say. Pray these things in your name. Amen.